Hello, my friends. This is Amy Lee San Juan, and I'd like to welcome you back to another informative episode of Cisco Champion Radio, where we provide insights and visibility into products and solutions across the Cisco portfolio and trending topics across our industry. If you like our podcast, please follow us and feel free to share your favorite episodes with your colleagues and friends. If you have thoughts on what we should cover in a future episode, please let us know on Twitter at, at Cisco Champion. Also, new feature, check out the timestamps in the description below and fast forward to your favorite parts of the episode. Okay, on to today's topic. It's going to get real interesting, folks. We will be discussing the latest innovations from our very own Emerging Technologies and Incubation team, which include Kalisti, the Cisco Service Mesh Manager, and Panoptica, the Cisco Secure Application Cloud Solution. And then we might get into some technology development initiatives. I feel like this is a really big topic. And so we have the best of the best with us today to help us deliver what you all want to know. All right, let's get into the introductions. Richard, I'm going to start with you. Tell us about yourself. Thank you very much. My name is Rich Atkin. I work for a gold partner in the UK called ITGL. And one of my jobs is to lead a, a software development team. So I have a couple of guys that work for me and they spend all their time poking APIs and doing cool stuff in uh, in Amazon and using Python and stuff like that with a whole bunch of serverless technologies to try and try and help us integrate one Cisco thing with another, put the icing on the cake, put the cherry on the icing on the cake so so our customers can can absolutely get the the best out of the this the latest and greatest Cisco things we've been uh, we've been selling them. Amazing. All right. Dan, who are you? I am Dan Kelcher. I am a solutions architect with IP Fabric. So I get to spend the day kind of looking at um, networking, assurance, observability, all that fun stuff, kind of automation, figuring out how everything everything plays together. Um, so yeah, good times. Outside of that, you can find me on, on Twitter at Ipswich. All right. Tim? Always great to have you on the podcast. That's such a can pleasure. You tell us what you, can you tell us what you do here at Cisco? Yes, uh, I do technical marketing. That's uh, something I've been doing for 22 of my 24 years here at Cisco. I love doing it. And uh, leading technical marketing now for Cisco's Emerging Technologies and Incubation Team. So very exciting stuff and very happy to be here. All right. Well, I'm going to ask the first question. Um, can you tell us more about what the Emerging Technologies and Incubation team um, is tasked with doing? Yeah, absolutely. I'm very happy to. So the Emerging Technologies and Incubation, or ET&I, is quite a mouthful. We're looking at uh, shortening that. Maybe it'll just be Cisco Emerge, but uh, for now, that's what we have. Uh, ET&I, we're the R&D part of Cisco. And I think this what is what makes it particularly exciting uh, place to work, because if you're going to work in high tech, how much more exciting is it to work on that ble leading and bleeding edge of high tech to really be pushing the envelopes and to steering the technology into uh, new directions and then ultimately uh, creating uh, new products uh, based on that research and development. And what's very different about um, our charter as an organization, for instance, what, to what we have done in the past when it comes to R&D or other companies are doing in R&D, is that often these initiatives are very engineering led. You know, we have brilliant engineers, 
and fantastic ideas and they're like oh yes uh, here's a technology and there's a you know there's something i want to pursue over there and build something there whereas we're taking a venture-based approach and this is bringing a new discipline to our uh, you know our our overall r d um, paradigm to say okay before we just start uh throwing money and resources at developing a technology for the sake of, oh, this is probably going to be a really cool or important technology. Let's focus on what are the business problems that our customers are grappling with, and then is this the right technology solution for that problem? And then just like a venture capital would have to make hard decisions to say, okay, you know, is this the project I'm going to green light and finance and then incrementally fund? Uh, etc. We're taking that same discipline approach to say, okay, where are we going to get the most ROI for our R&D investments? And so it's a very different uh, approach that we've taken now with this new org. It's about uh, two years into the mix. It's, I think, very um, spot on. I think it's the right way because if you look at all the successful technology um bedrocks in the world like uh, Silicon Valley or anywhere else where you have a uh, technology just really uh, functioning and, and, and trailblazing, they all use the venture-based approach. So I'm, I'm really glad to see that we're adopting it internally to Cisco as well. That's cool, dude. So uh, <laughs> so I I gather you're here to talk to us today about uh, a couple of products in particular that have, that have sort of been through your business unit and that are they're ready to sort of pop out into the world and start delivering benefits to to, to Cisco's customers. Can you? Yeah, absolutely. Can you sort of give us a few minutes on on what those particular things are? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Richard. So yeah, you hit it. Um, so our group, we do, as you mentioned, um, you know, research, uh, development, and then ultimately we want to incubate these products into a viable. Uh, offering that can you know generate revenue and ultimately uh, growth for the company. So it it is a process and it starts you know at you know these very early paper napkin type of stages and you know focusing on the business problem. But then as you continue to iterate with customers, we call them design partners because technically they're not customers yet. We're not selling them something, but we say okay, is this you know meeting your business needs or is there a use case that we're perhaps not capturing or needs to be expanded or whatever. We have to just keep working at it. It's a very iterative process, this type of innovation. And then ultimately you shape something and I continue to iterate and incubate it until it's ready for market. And so we have two offerings that are in that late stages uh, already. And that's what I'm, I'd love to focus our discussion on today. And these are Callisti, the service mesh manager. Um, and then um, Panoptica, our cloud-native uh, solution. And then sometimes the question comes up, well, why is Cisco even in this space? You know, this is, isn't this the space of, you know, some startups or some large cloud players or things like that? But it's a, it's a very natural extension to our thought leadership and product leadership, if you think about it, because these new microservice-based applications they're presenting a new frontier of networking and security challenges that are very similar to the ones that we've been addressing at and excelling at for many decades. Uh, we've connected users to their apps, but now the apps isn't just located in a physical server or in a virtual machine. It's made up 
of so many discrete composable um, services that are spread everywhere. And that requires interconnection. That requires networking. That requires security. That requires observability. That requires uh, availability and manageability. All the things that we've brought to networking in general, we're now taking to this new frontier of networking that is the microservices within these um, modern cloud native applications. So, uh, yeah, so maybe we'll start with uh, Callisti. Like, Callisti is our service mesh manager, and a service mesh is one way that these microservices can be interconnected and managed efficiently. Um, the, the key challenges in the service mesh is to provide observability of all these services because everything's encrypted. And therefore, you know, to, to provide that secure communication, you have to encrypt. But on the other hand, once you encrypt, then you sacrifice visibility. Well, a service mesh allows you to regain that uh, observability within this um, microservice architecture. It also provides traffic management, and that enables you to perform very advanced use cases like canary deployments, and we can talk more about that later, or circuit breaking or things like that. And then finally, ultimately, also to manage the security effectively. You don't want to have to be managing all these um, you know, encryption policies on a link-by-link -link basis. You want that to be very centrally managed and to be effectively scaled as the microservices are being spun up and spun down and interconnected. So these are the key advantages that then Callisti brings, is to enable the management of the mesh, which includes the uh, lifecycle management, you see, coming from a network uh, background, we might not recognize the complexity of even the lifecycle management of a service mesh. We might think, okay, whenever new features are available within a service mesh, it's probably going to be like upgrading a router or a switch. You just you know, download some new code on it and then bounce the thing and you're off to the races. But when it comes to cloud native, uh, there's these principles uh, that govern cloud-native uh, deployments, and one of them is immutable infrastructure, meaning once you establish the infrastructure for your Kubernetes environment, your cloud-native environment, that doesn't change, and you're not allowed to change it. So if you will, it's kind of like uh, being in a restaurant, and you're at a table, and you have all your things on the table and your meals, and then suddenly you have a need to change the tablecloth. Well, the waiter doesn't just come on and attach a new tablecloth to the edge of your current one and try and, you know, do a rip and replace in one dramatic motion. You might, <laughs> you might see that on TV on a talent show or something, but not in real life. Um, but, uh, you know, the approach that they ordinarily would use is to set a new table with a new cloth and then set all the new, uh, you know, plates and utensils and everything on it. And eventually, once your table's ready, move you over. Well, that's how we upgrade a service mesh based on this principle of immutable infrastructure. You create an entire new service mesh. You establish new instances of your services and everything on it and your applications. And then when everything is ready, then you direct new workload requests to that new mesh and new services that are running on it. And considering that you have to do this on a cluster-by-cluster basis, and you have to do this approximately every three months, like, for instance, Istio, the one of the most popular cloud-native service meshes is um, only supports two versions, the current and the previous, and approximately a new release comes out every three months. So if you're an operator 
and you have to now manage the upgrading of your meshes on all your clusters every three months and go through such a cumbersome process, it's a lot of toil and it's a lot of operations. And we remove all that, we simplify that, we provide integrated visibility. That's another challenge currently in the space. For instance, if you want to see, uh, there's a tremendous amount of data that gets generated in these environments, but then there's also so many panes of glass to view that data. If you want to view metrics, you have one tool or one set of tools, like say Prometheus and Grafana. If you want to see your topology, you have another set of open source tools, like say Kiali. If you want to see your traces or logs, you use other tools again, such as Jaeger and so forth, Elasticsearch, the ELK set. Whereas if you want to troubleshoot, you there's benefits to having all of this integrated, having a single pane of glass view so that you can really see multi, your, your, your application architecture from multiple perspectives and with a lot more insights apparent to you rather than flipping between panes of glass and trying to memorize the context and, and to keep that in your head and to, to try and follow issues uh, through there. So th that's another area. So managing the mesh is one key advantage that we offer, integrating observability. And the third key advantage and business value that uh, Khaleesi brings to customers is advanced use cases, making these advanced use cases easy. Uh, I'll give an example. Uh, canary deployment is something we mentioned earlier. When we upgrade from one version of a service to a new version, well, a real advantage of a microservice architecture is all you got to do is change the pointers. You say, okay, I have version two of this service ready. I just now point towards it and it's instantaneously. I have continuous delivery available to my users. I don't have to reboot an application and bring it up. Um, but if I just do a simple cutover from V1 to V2, that's called a blue-green deployment, by the way, that has a element of risk to it. Like what if uh, there's some unexpected, you know, issue with that uh, second version and now we've just done a blanket cutover to it. Well, we can de-risk such an upgrade by doing what's called a canary deployment. We say, you know what, instead of sending all new requests to the newest version of the service, let's say send 10% of requests to the new version and then gradually increase that to 20, 30, 50, until we really gain that confidence that it's handling the request and performing as expected, we can roll back any time. But this gradual upgrade um, for uh, microservice really de-risks it. Now, this involves a lot of very complex traffic management, which requires a lot of manual editing of custom resource objects and YAML files, etc. You really know, need to know what you're doing. But we make that very, very simple for users to enable with tools like Kalisti. So with that kind of digging into the uh, that canary scenario, uh, you said that you could kind of go from 10 to 20 to 30%. Is that something you can do kind of in an automated fashion? So you expect uh, maybe a, a transaction time to be 500 milliseconds. You, you know, the first 10%, we're still seeing that same 500 millisecond time. Cool, We can, can we automate it to increment how how much traffic is is redirected? Yeah, so within, yeah, we have we have two interface, uh, well, we have multiple interfaces, actually more than two, but the two key interfaces with Kalisti is our UI. And with our UI, you could do it uh, manually, just very simply entering the amount of traffic you want directed to a given service. However, we also, of course, 
like everything else in this space, it's got a, its own CLI. So you could, with the CLI, you could very easily perform that kind of automation that you're describing, uh, Dan, because then, you know, this is a very intent, right, to automate everything and to make it very intelligent and flexible. So, um, yeah, gradually steering and increasing the, the traffic uh, based on your service levels and what you're experiencing. And then similar, another option is uh, the opposite, the circuit breaking that says, you know what, if I'm seeing errors as I'm as traffic is being assigned to a service, and it doesn't have to be different versions of a service, one instance, one workload is producing a lot of errors, I might have thresholds built in to my policies that say, you know what, if you set, if you hit a certain amount of errors or issues or overloads or timeouts, whatever, however you define it, I'm just going to trip that circuit. I'm not going to send anything else there uh, to that instance because I want to preserve the overall experience of my users with my applications. And that's critical. In our days, we, we see that users will give their applications a luxury of three seconds before they switch over to a competitor's app. Uh, so you really have to provide and deliver that high level of uh, user experience. Like say you're ordering pizza and you're on one app and it's not working, and you say, okay, after three seconds of dissatisfaction, uh, users are likely to switch over to an alternate offering. You know, if you can't get a car with Uber, I'll try Lyft, and so on and so forth. So uh, we see that uh, you know, people are very, they have these high expectations, and they're very fickle, and so we have to ensure everything to deliver that highest level of application experience. And so automating that and programming uh, these types of uh, complex um Use cases like canary deployments or circuit breaking. However, you know all of these options that are available then to improve the microservice application experience. And when you're doing that, the canary or the the circuit breaking. So it sounds like there's there's kind of an element of like load balancing that's going on here. Is Kalisti sitting in line basically as a load balancer, or is it sitting kind of over the top and sending like a you know, making a change to something in the flow. Is it is it in line or is it just kind of the, the control plane? No, it's interfacing with the Kubernetes and the service mesh control plane, the Istio control plane specifically. And you're absolutely right. The load balancing is part of the uh, operations that a service mesh performs. And so it has its control plane to provide those load balancing decisions. And then Kalisti integrates with that control plane so that your express policies are then being implemented and enforced via that Istio control plane. And that's exactly what it does. And you can program to say, you know what, I want to eject, if a service is having poor experience, I want to eject it from all load balancing. And you can specify how long, uh, you know, you're going to eject it from a load balancing, um, you know, including it in that pool. Uh, until it regains, you know, all uh, the levels of, um, of service levels that you're expecting it in order to deliver that high level experience. So you, you can have very finite controls on not just when to take it out, but how long to keep it out and then when you're going to bring it back into the load balancing decision. Tim, I wanted to rewind a few minutes and you, you, were, talking, you were talking about the amount of visibility that... Um, that, that, we, that we can achieve now. And and I'm sure a lot of people listening to the, the podcast will will relate to having all the visibility in the world for lots of lots of things, but that in itself can prevent provide its own challenges. Uh, I've got so many logs in so many places. And the word that really 
that you said that really pricked my ears up was the word insight. So can you can you perhaps talk for a few minutes about how how we use Callisti to to tackle that problem of sort of death by logs and give people something that's actionable that that you know to try and make their lives easier? Yeah, no, really good questions. And actually it's a really good lead up to a related project. So let me break it apart. First to centralize and, and talk about what Callisti does. So Callisti will offer the visibility and integrate the visibility from um, multiple angles, such as we integrate topology visibility with health visibility, with the traces and, and even the logs so that you know an operator doesn't have to go to all these different open source tools. In addition to that, we apply machine learning to identify what is normal in your given environment and then we are automatically calling out those deviations and we can use them to set uh, service level thresholds and alerts and you can configure the actions that uh, are to be taken. For instance, you can just uh, notify or you could actually page or trigger you know, some higher level action if these service levels are exceeding their targets and their objectives, etc. So yes, we have a, a, a significant degree of visibility and observability um, within Callisti itself. Now, that being said, that sits at the service level uh, of the overall application technology stack. Above that, we have the application runtime. That's not something that Callisti observes. Uh, below that, we have all the network uh, traffic and details, etc. And that's not something we observe either. So to address that integration and to provide insights that might cross these different technology layers, we have the initiative of full stack uh, observability. And so looking at information that's generated from within the applications itself as instrumented, say, by uh, AppDynamics, looking at information that's generated from the network as instrumented and gained via telemetry from Thousand Eyes, looking at instrumentation from the compute platforms and how they're performing as instrumented by IKS and then bringing that all together as well as making this uh, very extensible. And we're building uh, a unified data platform that ingests all these different types of metrics, logs and traces, et cetera, all these different data forms and then provides correlation of these different data types and formats, et cetera, to be able to exactly what you you touched on there, Richard, is to generate more insights, to to take that data and to derive that meaning from it, rather than just being overwhelmed by it and deluged by it, and ultimately not just to generate an insight, but to generate actionable insights to say, okay, this is what's going on, and this is a recommended action that has addressed that problem, you know, and so many times, and then. Um, you know, take that action, you know, or recommend that action to be taken. And then some operators, well, there's going to be different degrees of comfort with these types of automated actions. Uh, and we've seen that already in our customer discussions. There are some customers that are saying, hey, do the right thing all the time, you know, because we, this is, we don't want people involved. We want uh, immediate response and, uh, you know, um, these problems to be fixed ASAP. And, you know, that's great. There's some that say, no, I want to be notified and I want a human somewhere in that decision-making chain to ultimately trigger that action. And then hopefully they'll get more and more comfort. It's very similar to the, the self-driving car technology, if you will. You know, even if you have a car with this technology, 
not every driver is fully confident in it. And usually there's this process where they acquire that confidence. They'll try it maybe on the test drive with the, the guy from the showroom and, you know, maybe try it a little bit more. And some people, they're just like, yeah, okay, self-drive. I just press the button and uh, I'm, I'm on board, you know. And so it all depends where the customers are. We see some customers, like I say, that are you know, very shy and they're, you know, still very ingrained in the, the manual decision-making element and, you know, with, with good reason. And then there's others that are saying, you know what, we're ready for the machines just to solve all these problems because we need, we know we need to act with speed and this can be a real differentiator for it. Yes, there may be mistakes along the way made, but we're also going to learn from those and make, uh, you know, better decisions going forward. Nice. And am I right a little bit, I guess a little bit of a tangent, but Am I right in thinking some of that insight stuff that you guys are generating also includes like Cisco's traditional uh, like threat response and threat intel stuff that, that Talos have been building up over the years? Oh, right? yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then even in the next product that we'll talk about, Panoptica, we integrate and, and receive information from Talos. It's such a huge uh, source of information that, yeah, it's it's a global leader in, uh, in security. And so, um, you know... I remember stats where Talos examines, I think it was five or six times more threats per day than Google does searches. And so when you have that kind of wealth of data that's part of your your data set for understanding what is the current uh, you know threats that are you know top of mind and being enacted and and the vulnerabilities, et cetera, uh, it, it's a gold mine uh, of data to to include in that overall uh, assessment and generating those actions. But yeah, absolutely, that's very much an intent. The intent. That's very cool, and it's good. It's good to see Cisco sort of repurposing that intel because, like, I can't imagine when they started collecting all this stuff, you know, years and years ago, that that anybody had service meshes in mind or anything like that. It's, it's like it's awesome to see the, the like the flexibility that 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 organization provides. That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah, you know what, maybe that might be a good segue to say talking about uh, Panoptica. So Panoptica is our cloud um, native security platform, and it addresses multiple angles of security. Just like, you know, we always have this uh, paradigm with with security. There's no silver bullet for security. You want to do security in layers. So we address security of containers, which includes, you know, the images, libraries, dependencies of all your containerized applications, uh, and then a, a, a monitoring these according to CIS benchmarks and and what you know CVEs and everything else, or even the MITRE ATT&CK framework. Um, then also we look at API security, and so this was a, a really cool innovation that we're adding that very few are doing uh, in addition to container security. Say, hey, don't just look at the containers and the software itself, but how are they intercommunicating? Look for things like um, undocumented um, communications. Uh, we call that shadow APIs or zombie APIs, API functions that have been deprecated or uh, drifts in the APIs. That is the, where the specification, what's detailed there is different from what's being observed. And call all these to people's attention so that they know what kind of, um, you know, communicate the, the efficacy and security of the communication that they're using um, entails and we apply we deploy fuzzers uh, to test them and so for instance we're very surprised at times to say you know what we received some PII personally identifiable information 
via this API and we weren't even authenticated when we made the request or things like that we can detect and we can report then um, for our users and we can then also enact and enforce policies when it comes to these APIs and crucially and I think this is really cool is that we're shifting security left we're not just leaving security to be a concern at the runtime but rather we want it embedded earlier into the development process, the CI/CD process, continuous integration, continuous de development and deployment, um, to say, okay, don't just wait until it's everything's in the runtime. Think about make good security decisions earlier, like at the deployment time, or even better, at the development time. For example, a developer, their focus is rapid app development, and they don't have time to do extensive security research. And if they have to pick an API, they're just going to do some quick superficial research, pick the first API that meets their needs, um, and may or may not be the most secure one. Whereas if we said, oh, you got to take all this security into account as well, well, that's just going to slow them down. But what if we can take all our information from Cisco Talus, from Cisco Umbrella, or even third parties like BitSites, and we can assess and rate APIs according to their security posture and their known vulnerabilities or even API endpoints and then present a curated list to the developer to say, hey, uh, if you need an API to do this, oh, here's our recommendations. Well, we just did all that security research for them. And now when they make a selection, it not only meets their application programming needs, but it's also curated by a good security posture and therefore, then now we've made a better decision earlier in that cycle. And therefore, uh, you know, it's better for everyone because if it's left till after the fact, then you have to do all this re-engineering, uh, which is very arduous and, and time consuming and expensive. Whereas just by, you know, sharing information via a shift left process, we can empower these developers to make smarter and more security aware decisions without bogging them down or slowing them down. So this is part of the intent of these offerings like Panoptica. Oh, in the third area, I didn't even mention. So I mentioned we did container security, API security, and now we're also developing serverless security. So serverless functions are increasingly popular, but they also have their own security considerations and they need to be uh, properly hardened for it. And so then we examine these serverless functions and then we can set policies and rules uh, to you know, enable or detect or even sometimes block certain types of functions if they are you know, deemed uncompliant or risky or however else we want to, to craft that policy. So I, I had a chance to play play with that with, in, with Panoptica. We use, we use a bunch of AWS uh, Lambda stuff internally and Python, all this sort of good stuff. And um, I, I think it's fair to say Cisco does a good job of licensing. And some, sometimes it's, it's, a, it's a tricky thing for people to navigate. But I tell you what, whoever invented Panoptica, they have absolutely smashed it. The sign-up process, never having played with it or done anything, sign up, get my AWS environment onboarded and analyzing my code was like 10 minutes dead. Like I did... It didn't even need the instructions and and the insight it gave me was lovely and it was quite rightly picking holes in like in my IAMS policies where I'd given things too many permissions versus what the code is actually needs. Uh, I, I was absolutely flabbergasted. 
It's I'm, well, I'm like, really glad amazing. to hear that. That's actually wonderful, um, Richard. I, I, I'm very, very pleased to hear that. And and we've done that on purpose because we realize that we're trying to reach a, a new market of personas, not the traditional Cisco market that would, you know, be led by the networking teams, but the people using these technologies are DevOps or SR site reliability engineers or developers. And we're trying to reach these people and they're very much attracted to a product-led growth model where they try and then they decide to buy. And so we've made not only Panoptica, but also Kalisti um, free. So all of the functionality, you know, is available to anyone. You go to Kalisti.app, you can start downloading it and playing with it. You have full functionality. You have no time limits. You, you know, the only thing that you're limited by is a number of nodes. Five nodes, for instance, we support for free to give you a flavor and give you a sense of how it operates, all everything it does. And the same with Panoptica. You know, we, we give it away for free. We allow people to test it and try it. And then uh, if they're like, okay, this really meets my needs and I'm ready to use this in my organization, yeah, then we have um, the ability to license it on, on that uh, kind of scale. And we were really wanting to make it easy. So I'm very pleased to hear that, you know, you had such an experience because that's really critical to this product-led growth strategy that we're uh, deliberately applying and trying and uh, for these types of products. And so that's very, uh, re- that's really uh, great to hear. I'm very happy. Where can folks go to try out Panoptica? Yes, you absolutely. Said Kalisti.app. So Kalisti.app. Okay. And then Panoptica.app. And so okay. they deliberately chose these names to get these unique websites as well and to uh, give it a very, you know, unique, uh, but relatively uh, simple uh, name that doesn't involve a lot of uh, crazy spelling. But uh, yeah, so Kalisti.app or Panoptica.app, you can just start downloading, playing with it, and then, um, you know, take it for a test drive. That's what it's intended. Nice. So, like, I guess me and Dan have like fairly special jobs. You know, Cisco partners. A lot of Cisco partners are very network centric and or telephony centric and what have you. Uh, and I, I think we're probably a rare bunch that ha- that have the ability to go and poke APIs and play with Python and automate our own stuff. So, it does does the does the does the R and D stuff you do extend to like training and education for? For partners and for network engineers that are looking to get into the application side of things as well, do you do you get involved with that as well? You know, we're getting more requests for that, Richard. So I'm actually very uh, happy to say that yeah, I'm ex- we've gotten some more people on our team, and so we're expanding the team to so so that we can meet those type of requests because we're getting that we're providing now uh, content, you know, for our own internal people to uh, to be able to understand these new technology areas and the challenges as well as then um, the solutions and the value that we're bringing to the table and then we're we want to do the same with our partners and we're already doing some of this with um, directly with the customers too in Cisco Live we actually have a new session track just on Cisco emerging technologies and incubation we've never had this before and we would try and shoehorn our content into established tracks that were very product focused and and therefore, we didn't really have the, the voice and a unified uh, platform to share, you know, all the different uh, R&D that we're doing, as well as, you know, the solutions that we're bringing to market. But now we do. So well, there's a lot more to be done 
to be sure, but I'm, I'm glad to see that there is that interest and we want to keep on, um, you know, delivering on those uh, asks by providing this type of training, you know, understanding that technology and that then leads to understanding what the challenges are because every technology will bring its own new sets of challenges and then where the value is in our solutions. See, a lot of our customers too may not even be aware that, hey, you're going to hit this pain point in your cloud native journey because maybe it's three or four steps ahead of where they currently are. But we're already looking at that and we want then, you know, to partner with uh, our customers so that they have a smooth journey to cloud native and these uh, application, modern application architectures uh, and by, you know, really paving that way. So the more that we can educate and inform and then share, you know, uh, our solutions with them to make that journey easy and successful, uh, you know, we want to do everything towards that end that we can. So kind of jumping back to Panoptica, um, kind of the same question that I had with Kalisti. Is this something that kind of sits in line when you're looking at some of the, the traffic and the patterns, or is this something that is kind of not on path? You, from a networking standpoint, you know, a lot of the, when we talk about firewalls or IPS or things like that, we're putting things in path. And then there's always questions of what's that going to do for performance and latency. So the idea of like, hey, we made all these microservices and we're, we're going to shoehorn more things in between them. Are, is this something kind of, again, the same kind of question? Are we yeah, are we talking to the, the APIs, but we're sitting outside of that path or are we in path? Really great question, Dan. And so I, I actually am really glad you brought it up because that speaks to a unique advantage of the architecture that we're using for Panoptica. Um, let me, it's an agentless architecture, but before I explain that, let me explain what an agent-based architecture is, which is the norm that uh, we see various competitive offerings um, uh, utilizing, which basically says for every compute node, uh, put an agent on it that monitors the what's being executed and basically kind of like virus scanning software that you would have on your PC, but on each compute node within your cluster. Well, then this obviously will present to you scaling limitations because now we have new software that needs to be enabled on every one of your nodes that was going to scale linearly according to the number of nodes in your clusters and then you have multiple clusters it will take a performance impact because now you have more processes to to churn it will also slow down uh, the uh, efficiency of your operations and then ultimately will also even entail a cost because if you're paying you know for these compute uh resources now you're paying even more for the overhead associated with the agents that are on them now in contrast panoptica leverages an agent less architecture we don't have dedicated software that's attached to each node and running on each node but rather we do a very elegant integration into the kubernetes api server itself and leverage functionality from within that specifically admission control in order to monitor and even enforce policies on it. We also leverage, optionally we leverage, the observability that's already available within the Istio control plane that provides you with layer seven information of what the traffic, you know, what's in the traffic flows. Uh, and that that's what gives us insights at the API level. Uh, and so, yeah, that is in line, but it's already part of the service mesh that 
many customers have already chosen to, to deploy. And so it's not that we're adding additional things in line, but we're leveraging the capabilities of the infrastructures that are already in place um, that um, provide this observability and policy enforcement capabilities, but we're not adding additional infrastructure in line. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? Yep. Yeah. So yes, we are in line, but we're leveraging the infrastructure that's already in place rather than putting yet something else into the mix that has to be you know, taxing and burdensome to the operations. So Tim, at the start, you said you were involved in like this whole business unit of, of crazy scientists sort of uh, re- re- reinventing the world, right? What, 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 what else are you guys cooking up? Yeah, yeah, you know, I'll, so the, the, the ones that the solutions we've been talking about and focusing on are ones that are so late in the incubation process that we're already, you know, releasing them and bringing them to market. Um, many other projects are much earlier and will only be coming out if they make it all the way to market, uh, you know, in 18, 20 or, you know, longer uh, month time spans and farther out. And so we have a lot of research that is around uh, different areas. Sustainability is a huge area of research. Uh, Leosat. And Leosat, if you think about it, it's a fundamental paradigm shift for us in in networking, whereas in in networking for years and years, of course, the network was stationary and uh, even the users were stationary for a large number of years. But then you know, with wireless technologies, we had mobility at the edges, mobile devices, but the network, the core especially, is still very much stationary. But now the network is in far more broader and faster motion with Leosat than any of the endpoints and the users. And so that just flipped the whole networking paradigm on its head and presented all these new uh, challenges to both protocol operation as well as designs and and coverage and and, uh, security and everything. Uh, Other areas is also, you know, uh, AV and metaverse. So uh, AR, VR and metaverse, uh, that's that's another emerging area. And then also, if I may, I really would like to touch a bit on quantum and quantum technologies. And we have some tremendous expertise uh, doing some uh, amazing things in quantum cryptography, quantum networking, and also quantum computing. So, Dan, I know you had uh, you had some thoughts on this. Like, um, when you hear quantum, what do you what do you think of? It confuses me. Uh, it makes me quickly realize how little I know about how the universe operates. Uh, <laughs> when we start talking about quantum within, I mean, quantum within the realm of cryptography is cool and scary, and kind of the idea that you could you could crack any password almost instantly because you can try every combination all at once. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's there. We, we could have a whole series of episodes on all the quantum stuff. Um, I guess the, the one thing that I might ask is if you could kind of talk a little bit about what quantum networking is, because I've heard of quantum computing. I've heard quantum. I like I, I haven't heard anybody actually use the term quantum networking before. So yeah. okay, I'm going to cool. I'm going to. Well, Put you on the spot with that one. Sure, sure. And so you hit the nail on the head. This is what I was uh, referring to uh, previously as well about instead of just pursuing technology, start with the problems. And Dan, you hit the biggest problem relative to quantum right on the head. And it's 
in the area of cryptography. You know, um, all our all our traffic, everything is encrypted, and we use the same fundamental algorithms. You know, Diffie-Hellman key exchanges, asymmetric keys, etc. But basically, you're just you're guessing keys. And yes, these keys are very large, and they take a lot of time if you're guessing them via a brute force method. But if you can test all possibilities virtually instantly, you can crack anything. And so that scares the hell out of everybody because that's the biggest problem to solve that's that's actually now presented, actually. Like we say, when I said also earlier that technology, uh, you know, Technology often solves some problems, but it creates some new ones. Here's a here's a great example. Uh, quantum, because of that potential of trying so many things at once, it makes computing very, very efficient, very, very powerful. But the flip side is that it makes everything insecure. If you're able to test every key virtually instantly, you can break into anything. And here's something else to think of. You don't just necessarily can break into anything in the future, you could break into anything that's already happening now. So for instance, if you had people eavesdropping on your network, say you have a person just, you know, sitting in a parking lot, catching Wi-Fi signals and all the Wi-Fi is going by. Yes, it's encrypted, but he's recording all of it and capturing all of it. Or you just, you know, you catch a signal from a nearby office location and you, you start storing it all. And then once you have a quantum computer at your disposal, then you crack it all open and everything's plain text. Well, you have tremendous amount of data now uh, that your competitors or whoever it is that you're looking to breach previously thought was secure and uh, private. And so, yes, that is the number one problem to solve uh, is how to maintain that privacy, uh, not just in the future, but even for our traffic today in case it's being intercepted and will be replayed and analyzed uh, in the future. But then to your next question about uh, quantum networking and the reason um, we're looking at this, well, obviously we know networking. And if we look about um, computing itself and how computing evolved, where you had, you know, these massive, massive computers and uh, they were in, you know, these dedicated research areas. And then what, what started happening? They started being interconnected with other ones so that they could even do greater computing feats. Uh, you know, and ultimately form what we now call data centers. And, you know, we interconnected them via LANs. And then, you know, a LAN or a data center would be connected with another data center that was farther away, you know, via WANs. And so um, this, this progression of how these compute resources were interconnected is very much we are expecting that to play out with quantum computing as well. So as advances are made in quantum computing, then these resources will initially be more scarce, but we'll look to interconnect with similar resources, whether it's in you know near uh, geographic areas or wider, and then they'll need to be able to efficiently um, you know uh, connect and leverage these resources um, you know either near or far away for these greater tasks. And then finally, when it comes to quantum computing, the reason we're entering this space too, then um, people might sometimes wonder, well, what what would Cisco be looking at that? Why wouldn't it just be, you know, I don't know, processor companies that are looking at that? Because when it comes to quantum, the ones and zeros, the digital binaries of all our information is represented in the qubits of uh, quantum. And I'm not going to go into details of that, one, because I don't fully understand it myself. And second, 
it's not really germane to the point I'm making. It's just it's represented using one natural phenomenon, these qubits. Another way that the ones and the zeros could also be uh, represented would be the polarization of photons. That's another potential way. And we know photonics. You know, this is an area that we have deep expertise because we use so much uh, of this in our optical technology. And so we're, we're looking and examining, hey, maybe that might be a more viable way or a different way or have its own unique advantages when it comes to, you know, these new types of quantum computing itself, just using a different way of representing those ones and zeros. So, uh, you know, cryptography, absolutely our first priority because that's the industry's first priority. We've got to start with the problem to solve. That's the biggest problem to solve by far. Um, quantum networking, we see this being played out the same way that computing itself played out. We have these compute clusters that need to interconnect and you need very efficient means of doing that. And then finally, even uh, quantum compute. We're taking a look at it using a different approach, photonics versus just qubits, and then seeing if that can bring some new value or new advantages that maybe the traditional um, approach may not. Anyways, just just some light uh, teases there. I, 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 I think it's very exciting. Um, obviously, there's, we can't go into a lot of the detail, I, and I, I wouldn't be the one to, to speak to that even in detail. Like, we have a much smarter people on this, but you know, these. This is. I just wanted to at least paint the area, uh, one of the areas that we're doing additional research and why we're doing the research in this area. Amazing. We'll have to leave it for another episode in the future. All right. Well, if uh, our listeners, if you want to continue your journey and learn more about what we discussed today, uh, check out all the links provided in the show notes below, and of course. I have to give you a weekly reminder. Please subscribe to Cisco Champion Radio on your favorite streaming platform so you could receive alerts on our latest releases. Thank you for listening in. See you again next week.